Good morning, and welcome to episode 457 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Perspectives, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. 457, of course, is how many doubles Carlos Beltran will have when he hits another double. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you doing, Ben? Pretty well. Great. So let's see. Um, Jeff Samarja, of yes. course, mm-hmm. uh, won a game. And uh, also matched his season high for runs allowed mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, that, and that streak really got some publicity after we talked about it. Not because it, we talked about it, but after we talked about it. It really did, and I'm and I'm actually uh, going to now distance myself slightly from our own interest in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I, you're right, it got a lot of. I mean, there were various iterations of yes. his quote unquote streak were were publicized. You know, X number of starts with. X number of runs or fewer and, and no wins and, and all these sorts of things. And um, and ultimately, I find the, the whole thing to have been, uh, you know, somewhat disappointing, slightly less than satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be some fun fact fanatics who will say that, uh, you know, well, history was made. And, it, and it's true. He, there, there are... Uh, there are various uh, filters that you can run that will make him be the only person who's ever done this, and it was an interesting streak, a somewhat you know moderately interesting streak. But I, I think that as uh, you know, as the new pitching lines uh, series uh, that nobody reads on our site has shown, uh, novelty is is not actually what makes a fact fun. Uh, mm-hmm. It has to be somehow. It has to to strike you. It has to be uh, not just not just new, not even just extreme, but it has to somehow capture something uh, elemental in the, uh, in the in the game and and I feel like he didn't quite get there he was maybe three three or four starts away from getting there I think that the, the, it, it could have been if he had allowed say eight runs today and gotten the win yeah that I would have said that would have been a satisfying conclusion uh, and if he had gone four more starts uh, being dominant without a win I would have I would have felt like that was satisfying but it, uh, it feels like we we you me and, and everybody else basically identified uh, this potentially interesting thing uh, when it was still uh, you know a few degrees shy of being interesting and and, and almost as soon as we we observed it, it it disappeared yeah I agree didn't didn't capture my imagination Steve Tollison on the other hand <laughs> mm-hmm. very very interesting uh, Homer today I'm gonna look up his uh, his current OPS, but uh, feels like pretty much uh, going to win me the minor league free agent draft. Seems that way. All by, all by himself. Because mm-hmm. uh, he's, uh, let's see, he is now uh, he is now hitting uh, 302, 388, 558 as an emergency <laughs> middle infielder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I imagine that he's got 225 plate appearances in him this year. I don't see your team getting that many. And he's yeah. also got the, the pitching the stats that he added. Yeah, really only really only takes one one guy, strike it rich with one unlikely minor league free agent to win that draft. In this game, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> all it takes. Yes. Uh, all right, anything else you want to update, or should we move on? Uh, I guess we can give the obligatory Ryan Webb update. Ryan Webb finished a game over the the long weekend. He did not get a save. So he is now at 82 career games finished without a save, which brings him to one behind the idol, Matt Albers. And Ryan Webb got a games finished down 9-0 in the ninth 
the the lowest leverage of low leverage games. Should have been a position player in there, but it was Ryan Webb instead. Guy just can't get any respect. Yeah. Um, I guess are we going to have to now update the um, the position player pitching pace every couple days? <laughs> uh, I'll mention it when when there is one. There but wasn't there, one. But when there's not one is arguably just as significant. <laughs> yeah, I think right? I'll, I mean, I'll spare people that. Changes the pace. All right. Um, so today we're going to talk about the Astros. One might even say that today this podcast will be an Astro Lounge. <laughs> a reference to the classic Smash Mouth album. One of the one of the first albums I purchased, and I still listen to it this day. So you, this is the second time today that you've said <laughs> I still listen to it. Uh, what does that mean? Because I mean, I, you know, I, there's a lot of albums that I, you know, I think I still listen to. But if you actually like looked at my log, it's probably been four or five years since it's mm. ever actually spun. No, it has not been that long. When's the last time you listened to Smash Mouth's Astro Lounge? Definitely this year. I think maybe not in its entirety, but I I was listening skip, to. Wait, wait. Do you skip to certain songs? <laughs> yeah. What songs? Do Although you skip it's to? really it's pretty good all the way through, I must say. Unlike many of the albums I purchased in my youth, this one has held up for me. Uh huh. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. All right. So you don't see. I remember the last time I listened to that album regularly <laughs> would have been. Oh, uh, glad there was a time at least. Yeah. No. When I so in, uh, fall of '99, I think. I listened to it for a few weeks. Uh, it was on regular rotation. And mm-hmm. as I recall, it was a lot of skipping to like the 5-6 area. Like the, it was like 5-6-7, I remember. Well, 5, of course, was, was all-star. Okay, well, then it wasn't that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just going to go on the record right now saying I skipped past that. So 6. <laughs> 6 is the one. Wait, is 6 the one or is 4 the one about how the president smokes pot? Oh, stoned is, yeah, is yeah, track yeah. 8. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I skipped to around that area, as yeah. I recall. It's <laughs> not a good, good one. about that. <laughs> I, I could see, see Fush Yu Mang, I could uh, see still listening no. to. Uh-uh. <laughs> I mean, because that still holds up for what it is. I mean, your tastes maybe have changed, but it is what we thought it was. <laughs> but Astro Lounge it is, is itself not what we thought it was. The later events in Smash Mouth's career put it in a whole new light. The same way that, you know, you can't listen to Fly by Sugar Ray anymore without hearing Every Morning. Right. Uh, so it's, it's a, it is a fundamentally different song from a fundamentally different band than we thought at the time. Sorry. Uh, so th- I want to I talk about this article that uh, ran um, in the Houston Chronicle by Evan Drellich, and it's a very long and, and very thoughtful analysis of the organization and and in in some ways it has kind of uh, echoes of the Seattle Mariners piece that Jim Baker uh, that Jeff Baker uh, wrote this offseason in that it's very well reported very well sourced looks at a lot of different things and is about an organization that has <clears throat> uh, sort of criticism and uh, from within and without about the way they do it and about their relationship to information. In a lot of ways, it's it's not like that article at all. This one is is uh, uh, is is I would say much much less a an indictment of an organization, mm-hmm. uh, and it's really much more a, a, a kind of a looking at what this experiment has has led to and how people have responded to it. It doesn't. I don't. I don't think this article has a point um, a, a point of view necessarily. It it lets the the sources speak for themselves. Um, and it's very interesting. You've read it. I've read it. Um, it's one of those articles that I, I, I trying to pick one paragraph to read 
is very hard. There are about mm. a dozen of them. Um, but I will mash two together and say that this is the nut graph. Jeff Lunau's radical approach to on-field changes and business decisions has created at least pockets of internal discontent and a potential reputation problem throughout baseball. Years from now, the Astros may be shown to have undertaken a battle that every other advocate of change, see Billy Bean of the Athletics and the Moneyball Revolution of a dozen years ago, has encountered. The Astros say resistance is just a part of the process, but no matter what the plan, they are presently in a combustible setting. So I would say that that serves as the nut graph. And then the sexiest quote, uh, and this one is not uh, by a named source, a lot of them are, but um, I don't think anyone's happy, I'm not, one Astros player said recently. They just take out the human element of baseball. Uh, sorry, they just take out the human element of baseball. It's hard to play for a GM who just sees you as a number instead of a person. And then this is the quote that I, I think is particularly strong. Jeff is experimenting with all of us. <laughs> um, and that's a pretty, I mean, you don't want, when a couple weeks ago um, when we talked about that Ken Rosenthal quote, or mm -hmm. interview with Jeff Luna when he asked whether the shifts are, as some have accused, uh, merely a means of collecting information for the future when when the Astros are going to be competitive and whether they're not actually an attempt to to win games now, but just to collect information. Mm -hmm. And I've, I followed that up by writing an article about, uh, and, and I don't think that's true, I think that's probably not true, but mm -hmm. I've, I followed that up with an argument, uh, with an article about what you would do if you had full control of a team for a year and you wanted to use it to run experiments and collect information for later. And one of the first rules is that you can't be too obvious, that you can't put yourself in a position to be sanctioned by the league, but, but also um, you, can't, you don't want the subjects to know that they're, they're subjects. It, it, there's that observer effect where if they know that they're being watched and uh, studied, that you can't trust the results anymore. And so it's really interesting to have this quote from this player who says Jeff is experimenting with all of us where it sort of shifts the idea of, well, they're not just um, trying to save money and pool their resources for a time when it matters, but that they're actually like kind of running this, uh, this laboratory with players who, you know, if they're thinking that way, certainly won't appreciate it. So uh, I have a few topics about this that I can steer it to, but do you have any thoughts about this article that, that you want to start with? Yeah, uh, I, I have plenty of thoughts about this article. I, I mean, I would say that based on this article, I'm not convinced, first of all, that, that this is really a problem, that it's a widespread perception problem, I think. Mm -hmm. you, you compared it to the, the Jeff Baker article, and, and I was more convinced by the Jeff Baker article because you had... You had current and and former front office people going on record and talking about this, which is really rare. Um, yeah. yeah. And that and in this case, I mean, Evan says it's based on twenty interviews uh, with all sorts of players and executives and agents. But the the actual Astros negativity in the article comes from I think three three quotes only three sources. One of them is the anonymous current Astro that you just read. One is an anonymous agent who says something about how the Astros treat people like numbers. And then another one is by former Astro Bud Norris, who seems to have sort of gone on the anti-Astros speak, uh, speaking circuit this season. This is not the first anti-Astros quote that, that Bud Norris has, has shared. There was one, uh, there was a story earlier this year in, in March on MLB.com where people were 
it was about the shift and and Bud Norris was saying, you know, from my understanding, they were just taking stats and putting it into a database. Uh, they did it more for a database. They were trying to get information to make their own new system. It was really confusing and they didn't have any input from me or any of their pitchers. Um, so clearly Bud Norris has a, a problem with the Astros. I've heard, I've heard that, that his issues with the Astros sort of started with the previous regime more so than the current one. I don't know all the details, but that's my understanding of it. Anyway, um, he clearly has a, a bone to pick with them, but, uh, I mean, it, it's only it's only natural, I suppose, that a team that is trying some new and different things, as the Esters are, would would get s- some pushback about it. And they they've also maybe opened themselves up to it a bit by being very vocal about these changes. I mean, none of this is a secret. We hear quotes from Jeff Luna all the time, or you know, everyone everyone in the Astros decision scientists. You know, we we hear. I mean, just the title decision scientist, I feel like probably opens them up for, for some ridicule, ridicule possibly. But but the fact is that they talk about these things all the time. They talk about the shifting. They talk about the tandem starting system. And they've been really, really bad. So when you come out and you talk about your new and innovative methods and you're winning 50 games, um, I could see how you, you could ruffle some feathers. And it I've wondered at times why they want to talk about these things so much, why they you know, why they want to make these people available for quotes, why they seem to talk more than most front offices do. And I've I've wondered if maybe they're sort of, they're trying to put a positive spin on all of the losing. Um, you know, because if they didn't say anything, then the only story would be we're the team that wins 50 games every year, whereas they're trying to talk about how this is going to pay off in the future and they're doing all these new and exciting things. And that's that's a better narrative probably than the we lose every day narrative. But uh, it probably does does ruffle some feathers, does lead to some some feelings in various places. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a there's a sort of cynical explanation that one might offer that basically it makes it look like, I mean, the wor- in in one way of reading the last three or three years or so is that the worse they do, the better it is. Like look right. look at look at how well our plan is going. Like if they won. Six, you know, if they had won seventy-three games or something, they couldn't necessarily point to that and say, like, like, look, we've really burned it down, and now we're gonna we're gonna build up. So I don't think that is the explanation necessarily, mm-hmm. but uh, but there is a way that um, that that would, <clears throat> uh, yeah, like basically inoculate them against mm-hmm. criticism because the if if you're saying our plan is you know basically to be bad. Um, which isn't what they say, but you know it's mm-hmm. kind of implicit. Um, then, yeah, you can. I, you're right, and, and I don't. I don't mean to. Uh, we're talking about this this article, and we're not talking about it because it's a big scandalous article. This is not mm-hmm. like Mariners one at all. This is uh, people chewing over a very complicated plan. And I think mm-hmm. the reason we keep coming back to the Astros as a topic um, is I think that this is one of this might be like the most significant baseball story. Um, to you know, to come out of this past three or four year uh, period, because it really is, to some degree, a battle over like the soul of baseball and comp- you know competitive balance, and whether mm-hmm. we're going to uh, you know whether whether the league is going to base it well. First off, whether this will work, whether this will be proven to be a viable strategy, 
and B, whether the league will accept it and whether the fans will accept it and whether other teams will accept it or whether some sort of response will be taken to change the incentives in baseball, either officially or via unwritten rules. Because mm-hmm. um, if the Astros win the 2016, 2017, and 2018 World Series, uh, then then what does baseball look like in 20 right. years? If, if, that, if, if that is established, if this is established as the way that you win, do you just constantly have teams... 25 games a year and mm-hmm. it really i think this is a significant future is to figure out whether this works and what to do about it um and i the story to some degree is um is about that too although not quite so um dystopian or whatever mm-hmm. in its in its outlook so um yeah, so, and when we when we did our astros season preview episode this year and we had zachary levine on we had evan on the the author of this article and i asked zachary whether he thought whether he thought the way that they have won or whether the way they have tried to build a winner will sort of haunt them or follow them into the years when they are successful, if they have those years as expected, will when they're contending for playoff spots, when they're winning playoff games, will everyone just say, well, they tanked for a few years. So it's, will it mar the achievement? You know, if they get to that point, having just totally burned it all down and, not really tried to compete in the short term, will people just say, well, sure, they they threw in the towel, they got all those number one picks, of course they would be good now. Um, and I wondered whether whether that rep would, would sort of follow them into into their more successful period. But uh, but yeah, that's that's not brought up so much in here. It's not, although it does, it, it, so in this quote by Luna, we're not running for election here, it's not a popularity contest. We're trying to win big league games. We're trying to produce major league players in the minor leagues. If those two results are occurring, that's what we care about. Mm-hmm. Um, so the that does go to the question of whether uh, popularity matters. And, uh, you know, there's this idea in politics that gaffes or scandals only matter if they, if they um, confirm and reinforce a pre-existing narrative about mm-hmm. that candidate. Yeah. And the problem with... The Astros being in this position that they're in right now um, and losing as badly as they've done and having so much conversation about the way that they're losing is that um, when, for instance, they don't bring up George Springer, well, mm-hmm. you know, how, a lot of, every team plays service time games, um, but with the Astros, it confirms a, a, you know, a narrative about how they are, they don't care at all about winning, how they're crazy, crazy cheap. Um, and how they're too—they're sort of uh, heartless in the way that they assess and/or handle players. I mean, these are narratives that have been allowed to develop because of their strategy over the last three years, and and so because of that, they stick to them. And so, I, like the question of whether popularity matters um, around the league, whether it matters if agents disapprove of them, whether it matters that Peter Gammons tisk tisks them. <laughs> Uh, in tweets, whether it matters that 29 other GMs are probably resentful that they could, you know, never get away with a 55-win season three years in a row, and Luno can. Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, does it matter if you have narratives around your team, or ultimately, do narratives dissolve after one hot streak? I mean, you know, are narratives around a team as fleeting as? You know, like we see with George Springer, where after 30 plate appearances, well, he was a bust. Uh, you know, he shouldn't have been in the majors. They should have sent him back down. He couldn't hit. He was a disaster. He was a flop. Mm-hmm. He was quad A. And then now he's, you know, super hot stuff. 
and mm-hmm. nobody's talking about that anymore. So do narratives for teams flip just as quickly, or is this something where the Astros for the next five years are going to have to kind of be mindful of the way they behave because they're always going to be on the defensive with, mm-hmm. with everybody? Yeah, I mean, well, it doesn't sound like they're like they're going to be. Um, I mean, when when Luna says, uh, or I, I guess Drellick characterizes what he's saying as, he says, Luna seeks feedback from across the organization, but said feelings aren't high on his list of concerns unless they impact outcomes, which sounds like a, a sentence that would just piss people off, sort of, you know, like if you're, if you are upset at the Astros for some reason and, and the GM says, we don't, we don't care about your feelings unless you do something about it, unless you, unless you stop playing hard, unless you leave, unless you refuse to sign an extension or re-sign with us. Uh, he essentially says that, you know, it, it could be perceived in such a way as he, he doesn't care about how you feel as long as you're not going to act on those feelings. And then he just says, anytime you, you've got human beings involved, you want to understand how they're impacted. And uh, and the whole, I mean, uh, all of these criticisms that the, the Astros think human beings are numbers or they, they only care about numbers. I mean, it it sounds a lot like Joe Morgan talking about Moneyball, right? When when he says, why would I want to read a book about a computer that gives computer numbers? I mean, it's the same sort of same sort of objection and it seems overblown. I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone with the Astros uh, is really reducing anyone to numbers or, or thinking that nothing but numbers matters. Um, but I mean... Yeah, I guess it could snowball. It could get to some could get could get to the point where it's bad PR that actually hurts them. Where I don't know, one player has a bad experience and he says it's the front office. They don't care about you. They only care about numbers. And he tells his friend who's a free agent, and that free agent doesn't want to sign there. But ultimately, I don't know. I have a hard time seeing it reach the point where it would really derail the the rebuilding plan. I mean, if they they have the talent and they develop the talent it seems to me like it'll it'll all work out and if this were i don't know if this were a team that were winning right now people would be writing books about how they were winning because of you know shifting and and tandem starters and all that right it's so it's it if they start winning using these strategies then i would imagine that the the perception would flip yeah, the, I think that to some degree the the uh, the tandem starters and the shifting and and the only looking at players as numbers that stuff actually is I don't know if it's a straw man or not but that is uh, that benefits the Astros front office I I would think because then it turns it into a progress versus tradition argument and history generally judges the progress side pretty well. Uh, in fact, even if history doesn't, the the current, you know, we, uh, it seems like the progress side always kind of has the cool cachet. And I mean, if they can, if they, if, if this is about whether, you know, they can, this, this generation's Billy Bean can defend himself against this generation's Joe Morgans, that's going to look really good for them. Right. And, and a lot of this article is about that. It's about, you know, how the players respond to the, to the shift and the tandem starting and all that. And it's, That doesn't really, I think, capture what makes the Astros different. I mean, what makes the Astros different um, is their their dedication to uh, this cycle that they've gone through, and and their when when you start talking about the 
uh, viewing players as numbers when it comes to um, their, you know, their career and their compensation, then it starts to get dicey because it's not really that cool to take money out of a, you know, 21 year old's pocket or to, to keep him down. Uh, it, it, I don't think that this case has been made well, but it's sort of hinted kind of this, this idea that, that maybe keeping them in the minors is like leverage to get them to sign an extension. Uh, I think, I think that's probably not true, but if that sentiment is out there, you know, it doesn't look good. And so there's really kind of two threads of how you could criticize the Astros. If it's just, oh, well, they shift more than other teams. That's never going to hold up, and that makes Luno and the rest of them look just smart. And unless the, unless the, you know, what sounds paranoid, but just this this whole lab rat idea that all mm-hmm. of these players are just like running on their little hamster wheels while everyone in the Astros front office steeples their fingertips and you know records everything in a spreadsheet. Which I mean that that sounds paranoid, right? And it's it's I mean I guess we've heard that now from multiple sources. Um, but it, it sounds very far-fetched. It does. And there's a part where Luno says um, that everything is harder when you're losing. I forget exactly what the quote was. And he wasn't talking about what we're talking about, but um, it does seem like part of the challenge of going through an Astros-style rebuild is that everything is harder when you're losing. And it's harder to get the players to buy into your, um, you know, your, your system, when there's constant losing, it's harder to get the media probably to buy into your, you know, into your shifting. When everybody's losing, it's probably harder. It probably actually is a lot harder to get every everybody to buy in on all of these things, and you do need buy-in. And so that might ultimately be one of the things that would keep the Astros-style rebuild from being a regular thing. Is that it? It might actually be that. For every loss that you add over, you know, 90, you have a less efficient uh, development system or a less efficient uh, big league club for some reason. That 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 it actually is hard to get buy-in when there's this omnipresent sense that none of the games matter because we're losing anyway, mm-hmm. and that the front office doesn't care about us because they don't give us what we need to compete. Mm-hmm. And that we're all doomed anyway, because by the time a good team comes around, they'll probably kick us out for right. you know the the hot prospect who's in Double A right now, art, you know artificially in Double A because they don't want to promote him or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it might just be that, like in fact, you you have to have a certain level of competence in order to keep the trains running, more or less. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if we'll. I don't know if we've seen that with the Astros. I don't know if they'll ultimately see it. They're on a pace to win sixty games right now, which. Uh, incidentally, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, better than 55, which is where they've been the last three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still 60. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I mean, you definitely need to have some some tact when you when you do something new and different and and potentially threatens people. It it helps to be able to convey it in a non-threatening way, or you know, to try to finesse finesse how it's going to re- be received. Like when. John Hart was telling me um, about a time that he he offered an extension to to Omar Vizquel, or they were working out an extension, and it was he thought a very team friendly extension and a very long term extension, and he said to Vizquel, you know, if we sign this, I don't want you to come back in here in a year or two 
and say that we need to re- renegotiate it because it's too too friendly to the team. And Vizquel said, sure, okay. And then he went on to to become a better player, and he was locked up at this lower rate, and he did. He came back <laughs> in, and he wasn't happy with his contract. And yeah. and so you do need to to worry about that sort of thing. Like if you are lowballing your players on these offers, and and thus far they've they've lowballed them to such a degree that they haven't even accepted them. Um, but if they were to accept them and then go on to become stars and be locked up to these these very team friendly deals, then Maybe you have to to worry about whether they will be happy and whether they will want to renegotiate or whether they'll feel like they they got taken by the team when they were vulnerable at an earlier stage of their career, that sort of thing. So, you know, if it's a widespread feeling on the Astros that that it's not just Bud Norris and it's not just this one anonymous current Astro, but it's everyone in the clubhouse sitting there feeling like the front office is experimenting with them and doesn't care about them and thinks they're all numbers— that would be bad. That would be a failure on the part of, of the front office or the manager, or the coaching staff, because even if you are, you know, judging them based on how they perform and how they produce, uh, you still you still want to convey the impression that that you care about them as people and you want them to succeed. So it's it's something that matters. Right. Or maybe it doesn't matter if, if those players don't play any less hard because they figure, well, if I don't get a long-term job here, I'll catch on somewhere else. I still want to play my hardest, so I look good to all the other teams. Then, who knows? Maybe they maybe they give you the same effort that they would otherwise. Um, which is sort of what Luna is saying with the the feelings versus impact. But uh, but all in all, you would you would prefer that the team be able to to convey what they're doing and spread their message in a way that. That everyone would buy into, but as you said, maybe it's difficult with the the record as it is. Uh, this is uh, I, I, this might be the last thing I have to say about this. This isn't really about the Astros, um, but it does have to do with the conversation we had about uh, giving extensions to minor leaguers and or Tommy John patients, and whether they will see it as too too much profiteering on the club's part. Mm-hmm. Like if you can get to a point where like the leverage is so overwhelmingly on the club side that it, any offer is going to look suspicious. Yeah. And uh, Boris, uh, in response to or, or talking about their um, their offers to uh, Robbie Grossman, which had you heard about that one? That was that surprised <laughs> me. Yeah, yeah, not Robbie Grossman, Matt Dominguez, and George Springer. Boris said, uh, this is a Boris quote, I think the key thing is you got to be able to have the information to make a positive decision on them. I view it as something you have to have very carefully analyzed because normally when they're offering it that early, it is for a very consistent reason and normally it's not one that's value to the player. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, that's Boris. He's both smart and uh, not shy about pointing out that clubs are self-interested just as Mm -hmm. everybody else in this world is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was pretty... You know, that's a pretty clear statement of what we worried agents and players would would think in this mm-hmm. situation. Yep. Mm-hmm. I like uh, I like the song "Come On, Come On," which was track thirteen, <laughs> and I like the song "Radio," which was track seven. Mm. I feel I feel like I might have skipped to six, which is "Satellite," and then gone from six on mm. on out. Uh, I like track three. I just want to see. I'm gonna have to play that when this <laughs> is over. <laughs> well, you will. And then I can tweet. I still listen to Astro Lounge. <laughs> anyway, I don't think the Astros will truly be outcasts unless they give Matt Albers a save situation, which still has not happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sorry, I'm listening to Smash Mouth now. <laughs> 
All right. Are we finished? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. This is, I know this song. Yeah, good song. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is <laughs> relative to the Smash Mouth oeuvre. <laughs> no, uh, need, no need. No need. No need to... No need to Do qualify have, that let me, statement. Let me, let me ask you this. I have, a, I, have a, I have one more Smash Mouth question for you. Okay. Do you have their third album? <laughs> let me, I'm, looking at my, I'm looking at my Smash Mouth uh, library here. Um, I, have, I appear to have five Smash Mouth albums. <laughs> what? <laughs> I may have an undiscovered Smash Mouth album. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has five Smash Mouth albums. Uh, yeah, just... Which one? <laughs> Which one? Did you quit on Gift of Rock, or did you go to Summer Girl? Did you skip one? Um, looks like I have, I have, uh, I have Magic. Oh my gosh, Gift of Rock is a Christmas covers. Yeah, I did not have that one. Okay, so you have, you bought a, wait a minute, you have Magic. You bought a Smash Mouth album in the year 2012. I acquired it somehow. Something via money from a person who was offering it for money, I assume. Oh, I see. Per, you, perhaps you have. Uh, I'm you have... not going to say anything about that. <laughs> yeah, I see it. Okay. Well, that is different. How do you decide what to listen to? Like, I'm I'm curious what the decision tree is that leads you to the fifth Smash Mouth CD. Uh, like, like <laughs> when you wake up tomorrow morning, is there a is there actually a route by which you will be listening to the Smash Mouth album Magic? No, I think uh, I think I was disappointed by by all Smash Mouth <laughs> albums that followed Astro Lounge. But I like Astro Lounge so much that each subsequent Smash Mouth album gets at least one play from me, just in case they manage what? to recapture that old Astro Lounge magic. What sort of what sort of day or or what sort of uh, what sort of activity is it that you like Astro Lounge to accompany? <laughs> Anything, but it's a sunny day or winter yeah, day. They're your classic California summer band, right? So does that do you do it in the in the winter when you're when you're longing for summer or do you do it in the summer when you're really anytime the mood takes me which could be could be year round uh huh all right <laughs> all right this will come up again <laughs> I hope not all right <laughs> uh, so please support our sponsor Baseball Reference go to baseballreference.com subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Always, always adding features at the Play Index. This weekend, Sean Foreman added a new search option for walk-off wins and losses. So in, in the game finders, if you want to search for walk-off wins and losses, you can now, you can now do that. Constantly <laughs> updating the Play Index. I, as it turns out, by coincidence, yesterday started a piece about walk-offs, which everybody you can read on Wednesday, I think probably, and uh, required some research. And and just by chance, that I think it might have been the day that it was added. Mm. And just by chance, I happened to notice while I was sort of trying to figure out how to use Play Index, the walk off button, uh-huh. and I clicked it, and uh, it probably saved me two hours. Although I did it <laughs> wrong, and so it also cost me two hours. Like it would have taken me four hours, but I <laughs> I I did it in two. Uh-huh. And now I realize that I could have done it in like four minutes. Mm. <laughs> so it's not it's not that you have such pull with Sean that you got him to add that option. Just, Although maybe he just, would have. Just by chance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so we'll be back tomorrow. Since we didn't have a Monday show this week, we are up to the, the listener email show tomorrow already. So please send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectives.com.